0: If you have a Bible, you can turn to Titus chapter 1. There are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one, or the text is printed there, just on the next page of the bulletin. Titus 1. We're taking a break from Matthew uh, this month, talking about some various passages from the New Testament. Uh, uh, So during the month of February, again, we've opened officer nominations. It means if you're a communicant member of the church, then you're welcome to nominate men to the office of elder or deacon. And so to, uh, to us assist you in participating in that way uh, we are doing a brief series covering some of the biblical essentials of church leadership and ministry, especially the essentials of what it means to be an elder or a deacon uh, according to the scriptures. and so uh, so last week we talked about the Christ-centeredness of biblical ministry. at the core of any leader in the church needs to be a real faith in Jesus Christ, a real knowledge of God through him, a real devotion, to the the message of the gospel of grace. Uh, The officer in the church isn't there to call attention to himself, but like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, we're called to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this morning, uh, we're talking about the elder, the office of elder in particular, and in an important sense, this flows from what we talked about last week, uh, the Christ-centered life, the gospel-centered life, has to manifest itself and be evident in the life and the ministry of elders. So an elder will have a certain, you know, sort sort of spiritual qualities and serve the church in certain ways that arise from that Christ-centeredness and arise from God's calling to such a Christ-centeredness. So again, these things uh, should be important to all of us, whether or not you're going to be part of the process of, you know, uh, becoming an elder or a deacon. But Paul is laying out for the, the fact that these are requirements. These are requirements for leaders in the church. So this morning, focus on the biblical description of elders, as, uh, in particular, as those who hold firm to the word of God and teach it for the good of the church. So let me pray, and we'll read Titus 1. <clears throat> Father, your word is trustworthy and good. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear it with faith and responsive hearts. Give us that gift through your Spirit's work among us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Paul and Titus, just a little background uh, to their relationship. They had planted a few churches together uh, on the island of Crete, uh, which is where Titus is now. Paul had to leave before they were able to organize these churches, before they came to particularization, as we would call it. uh, He had to leave before appointing elders to lead those specific churches in the cities that they had planted churches in on the island of Crete. So he left young Titus there in charge of that unfinished business. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus is to organize the church plants, Uh, To establish the government of these churches by appointing elders. Paul is writing personally to Titus, but he's also aware that the churches will read this letter, and he writes so that we can all learn about the importance of elders. Uh, As he says in his introduction, (laughs) uh, he is writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's what's behind everything he's writing here in this letter to Titus. So it's good for churches. It's good for believers in our relationship with God. It's good for our faith and our knowledge of the truth to observe what Paul says here about elders. So a few basic ideas about that. First, sometimes Paul uses different words to identify elders. Sometimes he calls them overseers. In other places you might see you know uh, the word bishop or something like that. Um, depending on your Bible translation, but really it's all just different facets of the same office, the same uh, office that we generally refer to as elders. So the Greek word that Paul uses here for elders in verse 5 is presbyteros, which is where we get the word Presbyterian. So our denomination or our tradition uh, is sort of identified by the fact that we have a certain form of government that has elders. Um, uh, And so presbyteros, uh, you may recognize the word presbyopia, right? Uh, old old person eyesight. It just basically means old person. <laughs> so that's what elder means. Uh, old man. <clears throat> uh, though that's probably meant to highlight the experience or the wisdom of an elder, more than merely referring to someone of advanced age. Uh, presbyters, uh, elders don't have to be very old. Um, that's demonstrated in the scriptures by the fact that you know, like Titus, he's a younger man who had a good ministry experience with Paul, serving alongside of him, and he's left in charge of appointing elders, uh, which means he's probably be considered an elder himself. So in verse 7, uh, Paul uses another word to describe this same office. He, uh, the, the English word overseer there in our passage um, translates the word episkopos, which gets uh, more to the concept of someone who has authority, right? That's uh, overseer. So the office that we're talking about has to do with experience in ministry, a good demonstration of that, proven track record of ministry, if you will, and, uh, and some some form of authority. The scriptures teach that this office is open to men. That's how this is talked about here. Uh, it's implicit when when Paul says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Uh, he's more explicit about this in other places. So in First Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, he has a lot of the same kind of things to say to Timothy, in, in especially in the third chapter of that letter. But in First Timothy 2, he writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And then he goes on to talk about the qualifications for elder. So I'm fully aware that that idea is offensive in our culture, and that's, that's okay, Uh, Christians believe a lot of things that are offensive to to the culture we don't base our beliefs on whether they're acceptable to everybody or even acceptable according to our own sensibilities Uh, so let me just say this is not something we believe because we're chauvinists because we think men are in some way better than women we do not think that Uh, this is not fundamentally just a matter of common sense. Well, of course, you have men leading the church. It's not that. Uh, This really is simply the plain teaching of God's Word. God has declared His will in the matter with clarity, and it is good for us to not explain away that, just to accept what He says, even if what He says doesn't make sense to us, even if what He says doesn't satisfy our judgment in the matter it's important for us to submit to God's word in ways that when, we, when it, it doesn't make sense to us, when it doesn't satisfy our judgment. Uh, of course, there are plenty of chauvinists who abuse the authority that is um, talked about here. Uh, that's clearly a matter of sin. Uh, anyone who says, well, men should be leaders in the church because men are better than women or more suited for it or something... Um, uh, they, they really need to seriously reconsider that position. And being chauvinist, being sexist about it, is definitely a matter for sin that warrants discipline toward repentance. Uh, but that's, that's a huge topic for another sermon, maybe for sermon discussion. If you want, uh, bring it up. That's fine. The office of elder is a public office. And in the Presbyterian form of government, the congregation participates in the process of nominating and electing elders to this office that's public. That concept comes across a little bit, I think, in verse 6, where Paul writes something of an introductory or summary qualification when he says, if anyone is above reproach, right? if anyone is above reproach, that means this is not just a matter of what he thinks of himself. right? The recognition of a man's reputation is a factor in the process. Uh, It doesn't mean the guy has to demonstrate sinless perfection, To be above reproach doesn't mean sinless perfection. Uh, That really is impossible, and it's clearly not a biblical reality, and anybody who teaches sinless perfectionism is uh, teaching something against the Scriptures. The the Apostle Paul himself lamented his own continuing struggle with sin in many places, and uh, the more he grew in the faith, the more he realized that, in fact, uh, he is the chief of sinners, as he called himself in 1 Timothy. So, To be above reproach doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means there's no scandal. There's no public scandal in your life. There's no grounds for public accusations against you. The opinion of the community is a factor. Paul addresses the the same aspect in 1 Timothy 3, in his list of qualifications there, which are printed there at the bottom of the page uh, a lot of overlap, some distinctions. Sorry, we can't spend more time talking about First Timothy 3, but you can read it on your own. He says there in verse 7, uh, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. So that's, you know, again, talking about no public scandal. So a basic description of an elder in the church is a man with a good reputation and recognized ministry as a Christian who serves in the name of Christ, who's called to exercise the authority of Jesus in his church. Um, The particular authority of Jesus. Now, uh, Paul writes a whole list of ways to recognize a potential elder uh, or or disqualifications for elders. He's writing both here and, again, in 1 Timothy 3. What I want to focus on this morning is something that runs through all of this and really runs through the whole chapter is the elder as a teacher. And so by that, I don't mean only, you know, getting up here at the pulpit and saying stuff on Sunday mornings. Uh, I mean the elder as a teacher in, in counseling, in discipleship, in helping children come to know Jesus, in brief conversations, teaching in any of those capacities, you know, personally, privately, corporately, small groups, whatever. Right, Whatever other ways that elders are to guide and help the church by teaching the word of God. That's sort of the subject that we're covering this morning. John Stott has a commentary on this. He says that the main function of an elder is to care for God's people by teaching them. That's what Paul is really focusing on here. He says in verse 9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the ability to teach is a distinguishing mark of elders. Again, 1 Timothy 3, he says, I've got to be able to teach. This ability to teach comes from holding firm the trustworthy word as taught. So any teacher of any subject, kindergarten teacher or college professor or anything at all, right? Right? any kind of master apprentice or you know teacher student relationship any teacher of any subject has to know his material right or he won't be much of a teacher this means that the elder has to know the word of god and cling to it that's what paul is saying this kind of uh, bible knowledge is not simply knowledge of data it doesn't just mean uh, you know he's got a lot of verses memorized uh, or he can recite all the names of all the books of the Bible in order, uh, or that he always nails the Bible questions in trivial pursuit, or anything like that. It's... Who do you see in the Gospels who can do all of that? I mean, the Pharisees. The Pharisees can do all of that. The enemies, and the opponents of the Gospel, and the persecutors of the Church, they know the Scriptures really well. So no, it's not mere knowledge of biblical data that's important. An elder has to understand the Bible's Christ-centered message of God's grace. Has to abide in the word of Jesus. Has to have a vital connection to it and cling to it for his own life and for the life of the church. An elder has to cling to Jesus, who is himself the trustworthy word of God, has to know Jesus relationally for his own life and for the life of the church that he serves. So like we talked about last week, the whole Bible is about our need for Jesus, our need for his mercy, God's provision of it. The whole Bible is about Jesus as our Redeemer. There is a way to search the Scriptures and know them well and not arrive at that. Not arrive at Jesus. Not arrive at the Gospel. In fact, there's a way to read the Scriptures and land in, in mortal opposition to Jesus there's a way to master the Scriptures and land in mortal opposition to Jesus. But Jesus tells us we have to search the Scriptures in order to find him, because when we find Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures, then we find true life. We find eternal life with God. That's that's what all the Scriptures are about. So the elder has to have a firm grasp on that dynamic for two reasons, stated by Paul. To keep people in healthy, sound doctrine... In their their relationship with God, and also to stand up to people who would distort the Bible's message, people who might know the Bible pretty well, but distort it and teach what they should not teach. So, John Calvin says, A pastor needs two voices one for gathering the sheep, and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Uh, That's pretty strong language. But that's the kind of language Paul uses here, that whole last paragraph. He says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. This is all about, like, their words. Empty talkers and deceivers. And they, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So, false teachers are a big problem throughout New Testament history, throughout the history of the scriptures, but... Particularly, you see this come up over and over and over again in Paul's letters and the letters of the other apostles addressing false teachers. This whole final paragraph is is often ignored in discussions about the qualifications for elders in the church, but I think it couldn't be more closely connected to the subject. I think it's crucial. We need to talk about it because an elder's ability to discern and refute the kinds of errors that we're seeing here It shows his appreciation for the gospel and his connection to Jesus, which ultimately is the only thing that an elder has to offer the church. What kind of error is Paul addressing here? What kind of error is he saying that the elders need to be able to refute, to identify, recognize, and refute? Uh, We don't know the specific details of what exactly these deceivers were teaching. Something false, that's what deceivers teach. But I think we have enough hints here and there in Paul's writings and maybe in this passage to put it under the broad category of legalism. I think think that's clear enough. They're of the circumcision party. They've got a particularly Jewish flavor. They focus on what Paul calls the commands of people. They're apparently very concerned with purity. And they profess to know God but in reality don't know God. All these things sound remarkably uh, similar to Jesus' indictments of the Pharisees for their legalism in requiring the strict observance of the commandments of men, or sound similar to Paul's indictments in Galatians of the Judaizers who demand circumcision and certain forms of ritual purity, or when Paul refutes in Colossians the regulations of asceticism that are according to human precepts, or Paul's description of false teachers in 1 Timothy 4, who require you know, things like the observance of dietary laws. Right? So wherever Paul went, once he started pre- preaching the gospel of grace, Jewish legalists almost immediately started persecuting him publicly. Even though he was a Jew, proclaiming the Jewish message of salvation through the real Messiah, Christ. The legalists started persecuting him publicly, and then they tried to teach the churches their distortion of the word of God. We see that happen a lot. Uh, So Paul was constantly being misunderstood by the legalists. He was constantly being accused of being antinomian, which is a big fancy word for saying against God's law. They actually misunderstood Paul and thought he taught something against the law because he taught freedom from the power of the law, freedom from condemnation of the law through the gracious sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. So Paul knew that the greatest enemy that the church faced was not immorality. It was actually legalism. That's the greatest enemy the church has always faced because legalism parades itself around as Christianity when in reality it's diametrically opposed to Christianity. So a really basic definition of legalism is this, a way for us to connect and sort of feel what legalism feels like, is this. To be good, you must do blank. And you cannot do blank. Whatever whatever filled the blank, right? God's law, your ideas, whatever it is. To be good, you have to do these things, and you cannot do these things. That's the only way to to be good or to feel good. So legalism, especially as we see it in the scriptures, is is law salvation. At its root, it's self-salvation, using the law, using some law, using God's law. It's salvation of myself, something I achieve for myself. It's ultimately self-righteousness. That's what legalism is. It's an attempt to, to be autonomous from God spiritually. And independent of him. I don't need him. In order to be good, I've got to do this, and I've got to not do that. That's what it boils down to. The legalist is setting himself up so he won't need God or his grace. In fact, the mere idea of grace always makes legalists angry. That You see it in the scriptures everywhere. That the, the mere idea of grace is a threat to self-righteousness. Because grace implies that you're not good enough to earn God's favor. It implies that. So the legalist resists the gospel. He actively fights it in his own heart and in the way that he communicates his ideas about religion. The legalist in the church creates a certain atmosphere of expectations. They say things like, you know, there's really no question about it. Good Christians uh, get their baby boys circumcised and don't eat pork. That's what you see in the scriptures. Good Christians obey all of God's law. Good Christians have lots and lots of kids. They raise them in such and such a way, and they send them to this or that school. Good Christians only listen to certain kinds of music or watch movies with certain ratings. Good Christians never drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Good Christians recycle and drive hybrids. Good Christians are Republicans who care about freedom and rights. Good Christians are Democrats who care more about people than money. Good Christians don't hang out with people who sin. Uh, Yes, sure, maybe we need Jesus to make us right with God. Yeah, the gospel's good, glad you preach it. But the Christian life is about trying really hard to be good. And good Christians are righteous because they do this and they don't do that. It's an attempt to feel good enough. It's an attempt to feel satisfied in and of ourselves. That's legalism. That's self-righteousness that's so deeply embedded in us. It's actually fundamental to our sinful approach to life. We are always looking to feel good about ourselves. Maybe that means feel good about our relationship with God. Maybe that means set ourselves apart from other people. Legalistic people are are afraid of being contaminated by the world. They're afraid that their moral superiority will be corrupted by sinners We think we can purify ourselves by staying away from those impure people. We're better than those people. They're the bad ones. We've redeemed ourselves by being not like them. And we're prone to call that just being a good Christian. Prone to mistake legalism for true faith in Jesus Christ. Prone to promote legalism as if that were God's way of righteousness that we find in the Scriptures. That's why the Judaizers in Galatia withdrew from the gentiles and that's why we don't hang out with our liberal neighbors or our conservative neighbors we don't have gay friends or we don't talk with bums on the street or whatever we we just don't have anything in common with them we have everything in common with them the only thing that distinguishes us from them is nothing you'll find in us it's God's mercy when you look for things that you do or you don't do to set yourself apart from others, to make yourself good, that's, that's a rejection of God's mercy. While pretending to keep God's law or some version of it, right, it's professing to know God but denying him by your works. That's what Paul says. By the way that you use even your good works, even your apparent obedience to God to actually keep God at arm's length. I don't need your mercy. That's legalism, self-justification. Jesus condemns it as hypocrisy. Paul declares it anathema, cursed. Tells Titus to make sure elders can detect that and call that out. Because it's insidious, it's infectious, and it has the potential to overthrow whole families in the church, really whole churches. Generally, uh, religious people have a hard time uh, detecting legalism because religious legalism just feels a lot like true spirituality to everybody. You want to keep God's law, don't you? I mean, you are concerned with moral purity and holiness, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, so is the Apostle Paul. After all, being upright and holy made the list of elder qualifications. But if you're looking to get good with God, get right with God, or, or even stay right with God by any behavior of yours, well, you just denied the gospel. You just denied God's reality. Because God is the one who has clearly stated that there is no way that you can be good enough for him. And even though that is his true judgment, he has graciously bestowed his full acceptance upon you in his son. Jesus is the only one who ever kept God's law perfectly, and his law-keeping counts for you. His righteousness counts for you. Your disobedience counted against him as he hung on the cross in your place under God's wrath for sin, And he died the death you deserve to die. That's the only way to become pure in God's sight. And if you are purified by faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, then to you, now all things are pure. That means that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, nothing you can do will defile you in God's sight. Your sin does not defile you in God's sight because of Jesus. In a sense, everything you do is inescapably tainted by sin. That's the reality. But God never counts that against you. He never counts that against you because he sees you in Christ. All your impurities have been washed away in the blood of Christ. If you're trying to purify yourself by keeping the law, by not believing and trusting in the purification Jesus offers in the gospel, then you're never going to be pure. That's what Paul says. There is no purity that way. Your conscience will never be fully satisfied and cleansed because your motives for being good are sinful motives. Even though you're trying to do good works, you're doing it out of disobedience, which is detestable to God, and you're unfit for any good work. So the elder in the church has to be able to recognize legalism, and he has to be able to refute it with the truth of the gospel. So the elder's job as a shepherd includes not just... uh, feeding the flock, but guarding the flock, defending the flock against wolves, which Jesus said would come dressed in sheep's clothing to be part of, the, part of the church, teachers in the church, but wolves who end up devouring the sheep. So if you can't spot a wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, maybe it's not the right time for you to be an elder. You need to be able to see when teachers in the church are trying to motivate people toward holiness by guilt. When people are trying to motivate people by pride. Appealing to pride. Rather than saying with Paul and Titus 2, it's the grace of God that trains us to, to renounce ungodliness. It's the grace of God. You need to be able to see the self-righteousness of the culture wars. That people want to fix our our country by fixing those other people out there, right? You see that that's actually self-righteousness. You need to see that when Christians are angry at God and have a sense of entitlement that they deserve better from God, or they joylessly pursue their Christian duties, or they come across as condescending or reluctant to share the faith, or are depressed that they're not good enough for God, those are all symptoms of legalism. Strong indicators of legalism. If you can't see legalism in... You know, the official teaching of uh, the Roman Catholic Church about justification. Or if you can't see the legalism in popular evangelical teachings about sanctification. Or even common Reformed attitudes or teachings. If you can't address those errors with the gospel of grace, then it may not be the right time to be an elder. The job of an elder is to proclaim and preserve the graciousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ for every part of life in the church. The job of the elder is nothing other than to help the brothers and sisters grow in their relationship with Jesus, grow in their trust in Jesus, because that gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only hope that any of us have, and it's really hard for us to tell when we've wandered away from it. So how do you grow in that ability to detect legalism and refute it with the true gospel? Because this really should be something that's helpful for all of us and not just those who are elders or potential elders or whatever. How do you grow in your ability to detect legalism and refute it with the true gospel? Well, you start by seeing the problem in your in yourself first. That's where you've got to start. You ask God to help you see your own self-righteousness, your own legalism, so that you can repent of it. So you can recognize it and repent of it and throw yourself on God's mercy instead. You'll probably need the help of a good friend, because we put up all kinds of blockades and, um, and smoke screens uh, in order to deceive ourselves into thinking we're not self-righteous. I'm not, I'm not legalistic. Right? But trust me, there is a plank in your eye. Your friend can help you see it. This is one of those areas where it's really helpful to confess our sins to one another and, and offer the grace of Christ to each other. And it's only in the assurance of forgiveness that's found in the gospel that we can have really any courage to face our own corruption on that level of that kind. So once you're persuaded that God really does love you for Jesus' sake, then it's okay to let down your guard and look at your own heart and say, Hi, my name is Eric. I'm a legalist. (laughs) What you'll find in your heart is exactly the same kind of stuff you're going to find in anybody else's heart. in other people or in their teachings. So once you're familiar with the process of getting down to the roots yourself, right, and applying the gospel to your own self-righteousness, then, then you'll really start to see how to address the same thing in others, refuting their error in a gracious manner. Right, so 2 Timothy 2, <clears throat> Paul says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So we're not just talking about run around pointing out everybody's problems with legalism. Must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So if God granted repentance from self-righteousness to someone like you, then you can show some patience and pray for the same thing in others that's what Paul's saying. But sometimes people just aren't willing to give up their error. They're clinging to their self-righteousness. They won't let go. It's too important. They'll lose too much if they let go of that that way of legalism. When that person fits Paul's description of insubordinate deceiver, upsetter of families, teaching for shameful gain, then you stand up against their teaching and you take away their platform and you do what you can to silence that teaching. Titus uh, um, says of, in chapter three, uh, Paul says to Titus, avoid foolish and ignorant controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So, I mean, these are strong words for the ways that uh, the leaders in the church are to help the church in the way that they interact with those who are committed to the way of legalism and teaching it. So we're not messing around here in the church. This is a matter of life and death when someone distorts the gospel or proclaims another gospel. Now, we all need to grow in our ability to see what's happening know how to handle it according to God's word. If we're truly interested in making the gospel of Jesus Christ the center of our lives as individuals and as a church together, collectively, but it's something that elders especially need to have experience with in order to hold firm to the trustworthy word of grace so that he's able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also refute those who contradict it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us all to hold fast to the trustworthy word to cling to Jesus alone for our life with you. Keep us in the faith and use us all in each other's lives to that end, to keep us all in the faith. Thank you for the gospel taught by the apostles with clarity in the scriptures. Thank you for providing elders who are devoted to this gospel. We pray that you would please help us to entrust this gospel to others who will be faithful to teach others also, even to the end of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.